Are you familiar with uh, the term cherry picking as it relates to sports? Yeah. Yep. Uh, when I played hockey, I hated cherry pickers. Didn't matter if they were on my team or on the other team. A cherry picker is someone who, when the other team gets the puck and they're on the offense, they're on the attack, a cherry picker refuses to come back and play defense. They just want to hang down by the far blue line, hoping that their team, now four against five, will intercept the puck and pass it up to them so that they can score an easy goal. So cherry pickers in hockey score a lot of goals but they also handicap their team and allow a lot of goals. So moral of that story, don't be a cherry picker. Aren't you glad you came to worship this morning? Just in case you're ever playing hockey, it applies to basketball as well. When we come before God's word, uh, we can also cherry pick. So cherry picking scripture is picking out those, those verses and isolating them and saying, boy, I love this. This is great. This is the whole truth about this subject. And ignoring perhaps the context around that verse, ignoring other scriptures that speak to the same subject, when we cherry-pick scripture, we can make the Bible say just about anything we want. I, I could justify murder if I cherry-pick scripture. Uh, could justify that, that men are superior to women if I cherry-pick scripture. So moral of the story, don't cherry-pick Scripture. And here's my confession, it's really tempting to cherry-pick Scripture. Because there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. There are things in the Bible that make me uncomfortable. They're hard to hear. There are things in the Bible that present tensions. One of you uh, is recently doing the, the Bible recap, and you came to me and said, there's these things that I never saw before, and it's... It seems like their intention, like there's almost a contradiction. We see things that, that are difficult. And one of the ways that we can uh, circumnavigate that, sidestep that, is just cherry pick. Ignore the things that are difficult. Ignore the things that are hard to hear. But we do so at a cost. So uh, we are in a sermon series uh, calling Draw Near, and our theme verse is James 4.8, which we all know, this is the easy one. Yes, <laughs> draw near to God, and he will, bam, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That is an amazing verse of scripture. It's an amazing passage, it's amazing truth, an incredible sentence, but it is a sentence that doesn't stand alone. It's not a sentence that we can cherry-pick. There's an actual context to that, that verse. And so this whole series has, has been about examining the context. Today we're going to examine the context immediately around that verse, and, and there's going to be some things that might be hard to hear. And so you can see why we'd want to cherry-pick it. What we're going to see is that the reason we fail to draw near is not because we're unwelcome. God, we just quoted in Hebrews 10, he's opened the curtain by the blood of Jesus. We have a new and living way. Therefore, draw near in confidence. We've been invited to draw near in confidence, and yet when we fail to come, it's not because we're unwelcome. 
it turns out that it's because we're unwilling. We're actually unwilling to draw near. The veil has been opened on God's side. There is nothing on God's side that prevents us from coming if we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is an open door. But it turns out there's a secondary veil, there's a secondary curtain, and it's actually on our side. And in order for us to draw near, now we need to part the curtain. We need to open the door. Join me as we pray. Lord, uh, forgive us when we cherry-pick your word and we look for what we want to find. We ask today that you would fill us with your truth. And where that's troubling or difficult to understand, we ask that you'd give us wisdom and, and understanding. Illuminate your word that it might accomplish your purposes in our life. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. Amen. So we're going to go back uh, a couple of verses. We're going to start at James 4, verse 4. And right out of the gate, it's going to be hard to hear. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And all God's people said, amen. You adulterous people, you cannot accuse James of mincing words. I wonder what it was like for that first congregation. And James wrote this letter to a congregation, and it was read to the congregation, and they heard these words like, like you heard them. And they knew that these words were addressed to them. We can hear those words and think, oh, that's really not addressed to us. That's addressed to somebody else. They knew it was addressed to them, as should we. So I wonder what it was like for them to hear that. Was there, were there amens? Preach it, brother. Or was there some squirming in seats and, and some discomfort was it hard for them to hear? I'd never commit adultery, you adulterous people. Certainly that's not me. Don't you understand, James said, that God's spirit that lives in you envies intensely? I love this, this truth, that God's spirit lives in us. We've been talking about drawing near, drawing near to God. If God's spirit lives in you, 
You know what that, that means? That drawing near is not about closing a physical distance. It is not about proximity. How much closer can you get to God if his spirit, the Holy Spirit, is living inside of you? And so drawing near means that it's not about some distance that we need to, to close the gap. There's some other impediment. There's some other obstacles that we must overcome in order to, to draw near. Don't you know that the spirit that, that lives in you envies intensely that God is jealous? What is he jealous for? He's jealous for you. In Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. It turns out that what God is jealous for is, is your worship. He is jealous for, for his glory. And what is his glory? Your worship is his glory. This morning as you came here and, and you entered into praise, that is God's glory. Your obedience to his will is God's glory. When you sense the Holy Spirit calling you to do something and you do it, that is glory to God. When you sense the Spirit telling you not to do something and you don't do it, that is glory to God. Your love for the things that God loves, that is God's glory. Your devotion to God, that is his glory. And God is not going to share that glory with another. He is jealous for you. Jealous for your worship, jealous for your praise, your obedience, your your devotion. Uh, recently, this interview 25 years ago with Princess Diana has been in the news uh, because there's some allegations that the, the person conducting the interview manipulated Diana into that interview. Uh, I saw the interview and a portion of it. This little 30-second segment really stood out to me, and I, I want to share that with you now. Do you think Mrs. Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Do you think Mrs. Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, Diana said there were three of us in the marriage, and so it was a bit crowded. And so it's not surprising that it goes on to say that at that point, Princess Charles and, and Princess Diana began to grow apart. And you know, in the beginning, that was not about proximity. They could be walking down the street together, even holding hands, and yet their hearts are growing farther and farther apart. Why? Because there were three people in the marriage. So what's getting in the way of you drawing near to God? It's not about uh, proximity. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So what is getting in the way of us drawing near? Well, James lists three things that I think are common to all of us, and he also gives the remedy for those three things. And so we're going to walk through that. The first thing he says is the obstacle that we need to overcome is double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does it mean to be double-minded? Well, 
I think a, maybe a crude way of saying it is what it means is that you want to be married, but you also want to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend on the side. That's double-minded. To be double-minded is not actually just wanting that, but actually living as if somehow that's a workable relationship. Like it's okay to, to, to be married to one and yet have a girlfriend or boyfriend on the other, that that somehow is workable. You know, during the week, I belong to you, but on the weekends, I have somebody else on the side, but don't worry because on Sunday morning, maybe at 9.30... I'll return to you. And, and that somehow should be okay. It's not okay. How perverse, how insensitive, how cruel, how arrogant to actually think that the spouse to whom you have pledged yourself, forsaking all others, should somehow be okay with you having a friend. On the side. During the, the 15 years that I've served as a pastor, I've walked with multiple couples through the, the very difficult trial of adultery. And, and what I've found in my heart is a tenderness and a compassion for those couples that are trying to, to pursue healing and, and make things work. But what I will also confess is I have found in my heart a, a challenge toward that rare person who somehow thinks that this is workable, that I can, can be married and stay in this marriage, and I can have my friend on the side, and that everybody should be okay with that. So it's so clear to me, it's so obvious, it's so evident that this is not workable. This is not a solution. You cannot live in both lanes. You've got to make a choice. So this is what I'm confronted with. What I find reprehensible, even abhorrent, I do to God all the time. Thinking that, that I can, can love God and pledge myself to Him as my Lord and Savior and I can have some friends on the side and expect that he's going to be okay with that. That this is a workable relationship. It's called being double-minded. I love you, God, and I love these other things. Think about our, our, our children's sermon. There are some things that, that are preventing me to get to God, and in order to get to God, I have to let go of those things. And if I go to God, then I'm going to let go of those things. But if I refuse to let go of them, they actually keep me from drawing near to God. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot hold on to the bar and get to the other side of the monkey bars. It doesn't work. James 4 is addressed to me. And I think it's addressed to you. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards me? If you choose to be a friend of the world, if you cozy up to the, the things of this world, if you refuse to let go of those things that are warring for your heart, you actually become, it's not only you just can't get to me, it's you become 
my enemy. If we're not going to pretend like those words are for someone else, if we recognize those words are for us, they're hard to hear. But they're also pretty obvious, aren't they? Isn't it self-evident? Isn't it pretty clear that we can't have it both ways? You've got to pick a lane. You've got to, you've got to choose a side. So I, I think in Scripture, a, a classic example of a person who is double-minded is Lot. If you remember this story, in Genesis 13, Abraham and his nephew Lot arrive to the plains of Jordan, and they have so much livestock, the land can't support both uh, of their families, and so Abraham says to Lot, you know, we've got all of this land before us, you choose which way you want to go, I'll go the opposite way. And so Lot looks out and he looks to the east and he sees this beautiful, fertile land to the east and he says, I'll go that way. And Abraham says, okay, I'll go the other way. And so Lot takes his family and all of his possessions east and we read in verse 12 that he places his tents outside of Sodom. And in verse 13, the very next verse, we read that the people of Sodom are exceedingly wicked. So Sodom has camped next to this, this city, this community that is exceedingly wicked. I think, well, that, that should be okay, right? Maybe Psalm 1 is not true for Lot. Maybe he's going to figure out how to, to circumnavigate this truth that, that says, blessed are those who don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the mocker. But then we get to Genesis 19, just a couple chapters later, and guess where we find Lot? Sitting in the city gate. So, so people who sat in the city gate, they were the leaders of the community. He went from pitching his tents near Sodom to now he is sitting in the city gate. He's been absorbed into this community. He is a, man, a double-minded man, a worshiper of God. But there's some things that, that he's holding on to that he's not willing to let go. Oh, Lot, don't you know that friendship with Sodom is hatred towards me, towards God? Lot, if you choose to be a friend of Sodom, you become my enemy. You can't have it both ways. So God has given us a remedy for this. And it's not complex very simple. It's hard, but it's very simple. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's the remedy? Tell the, the boyfriend, tell the girlfriend to take a hike. Let go of that thing that you are clinging so tightly to that, that while you're singing, there's nothing better than you. There's really something you're saying that is better than you. Purify your hearts, let go of it. So that's the first obstacle that keeps us from drawing near, things that we're not willing to let go of. The second obstacle, James tells us, is pride. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride is the most subtle and the most dangerous of all sins. 
I think it's the most dangerous because it doesn't feel particularly sinful. We don't recognize it as sin. I'm not like those double-minded sinners. I'm not like those adulterers. They disgust me. I stay far from Sodom. My resume is impressive. Of course God calls me to draw near. I deserve to draw near. I've earned the right to draw near. I've worked hard to pay the price so that I can draw near. Now, pride would never say those things because pride knows that that would appear to be a, a bad thing to do, and so it goes undercover. God opposes the proud. In fact, I dare say, God would rather the vilest of sinners draw near to him if they came in contrition and repentance than the proudest of saints drawing near to him who don't think they have anything to confess. I really think that's true. God would rather have the vilest of sinners come before them if they came in a spirit of repentance and contrition than the proudest of saints who think they have nothing over which they need to confess. There's a reason when we look at the Gospels that it is always the Pharisees who are getting Jesus' sharpest rebuke. When you think of all the broken people, the sinful people that Jesus uh, rubbed up against, and, and we don't see him offering these sharp rebukes to them. But then he rubs up against these Pharisees, these ultra-religious people, and he says things like, you brood of vipers. It's because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives us a remedy for our pride, and, and frankly, we don't like it. We sing songs about turning mourning to dancing. We want to turn mourning to dancing. But you know what the Bible says? Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Draw near to the Lord in humility. Recognize that it is only God's sheer grace that enables you to draw near. Third obstacle to draw near that James identifies is the devil, the devil himself. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. My understanding of scripture is that the devil's days are numbered, that he has lost the victory. And so he's got this window of time in which he's operating, and he really has two main goals. One of his goals is to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they won't be saved. So right now, if, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if for whatever reason you've yet to do that, what this scripture is saying is that the devil is at work trying to keep you from doing that. The devil doesn't want you to do that. And he's blinding your mind so that you won't take that next step. That's one of the things that, that the devil does. But the other thing that he tries to do is with believers. He knows that, that believers are saved. But 
in this interim time, he's trying to drive a wedge between believers and their Lord so that we will not draw near. If he can get us, even though we're saved, to not draw near to, to God, he counts that as a victory. So how does he do it? How does he drive a wedge? Well, I think James has already mentioned the two ways. The first is adultery, spiritual adultery. The devil is trying to capture your heart by some worldly affection. You know them all, money, pleasure, success, reputation, all things that in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. God created them. But when they become ultimate things, when they capture the devotion of our heart, we're now committing spiritual adultery. The devil tries to make us double-minded, divide and conquer. He knows that a marriage that has three people in it is destined to, to have some division. So his secondary strategy, if, if the first fails, is pride. If he can't get us to, to stumble and get tripped up in some, some worldly thing, he's just going to shift strategies and, and turn to pride. The more he can get, get you focused on yourself, your, your self-righteousness, the more judgmental he can make you feel of others, the more condemning, the more legalistic he can get you to be, he scores a point. It doesn't matter to him if it's adultery, if it's pride, if it drives a wedge between you and God, that makes him happy. So God gives us the remedy for this as well. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do we resist the devil? You draw near to God. You see, I used to think that I could only draw near to God if I resisted the devil. If, if I had everything right, then I could draw near. But it's actually in the drawing near that I resist the devil. Does that make sense? There's a, a curious verse that's buried in James 4 that we haven't said anything about. Verse 6. It says, but he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. And what that, that causes me to, to realize is that on my very best days, on my very best weeks, when I arrive here on a Sunday morning and, man, I have performed wonderfully, it is only by God's grace that I'm invited to come before him. And on my very worst weeks, when, when I've made a mess of things, it is by God's grace that I'm able to draw near my best day, my, my worst day, my best week, my worst. I'm always, we are always dependent on God's grace, and he's pleased to give us more grace. This morning, we're celebrating the sacrament of communion, and, and I love that we call it communion. That, that this, when we come to the table, God we believe, actually invites us into his presence. God meets with us. We don't believe that this is just something that we're doing to remember something that happened a long time ago. That's certainly part of it. But we believe God imparts grace to us, that his Holy Spirit meets with us through the sacrament. Here at the table, we have communion to him. So this is an opportunity to draw near.
The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise. Join me as we pray. Father God, your word calls us to, to draw near. You call us to draw near, even to your, your very footstool. And Lord, you have made the way by your blood that we can draw near. Lord, you've paid the greatest price that we might draw near. So Lord, those things in our lives that are standing in the way, Lord, we need your grace to overcome them. Lord, whether that's we need to resist the devil, whether there's something that we're clinging to that we know that you're calling us to let go of, or maybe it's our pride, whatever it is, we pray that you would give us the grace to to say no to that so that we may say yes to you, that we wouldn't be double-minded. Lord, as we come to the table, we recognize that our debt is paid in full and that we haven't contributed a penny to the payment of that debt, that you have done it all and it's finished. Lord, you've extended to us the, the red carpet that we may draw near, so, so we pray that we would do that and we ask, Holy Spirit, that, that you would descend upon us that we might experience the communion through the bread, through the cup this morning, that we might meet with you, that, that you might impart your grace in a, in a very real yet mysterious way. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.